everybody, today I'll be reading And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. Epigraph Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little soldier boys travelling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. Bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got fizzled up, and then there was one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself. And then there were none. Two. There were Claythorn in a third-class carriage with five other travellers in it, leaned her head back and shut her eyes. How hot it was travelling by train today. It would be nice to get to the sea. Really a great piece of luck getting this job, when you wanted a holiday post and nearly always men looking after a swarm of children. Secretarial holiday posts were much more difficult to get. Even the agency hadn't held down much hope. And then the letter had come. I have received your name from the skilled woman's agency, together with their recommendation. I understand they know you personally. I shall be glad to pay you the salary you ask, and shall expect you to take up your duties on August 8th. The train is the 12.40 from Paddington, and you will be met at Oakbridge Station. I enclose five one-pound notes for expenses. Yours truly, Una Nancy Owen. And at the top was the stamped address. Soldier Island, Stickelhaven, Devon. Soldier Island! Why, there had been nothing else in the papers lately. All sorts of hints and interesting rumours, though probably they were mostly untrue. But the house had certainly been built by a millionaire and was said to be absolutely the last word in luxury. Vera Claythorn, tired by a recent strenuous term at school, thought to herself, Being a gamer's mistress in the third-class school isn't much of a catch. Hmm. If only I could get a job at some decent school. And then with a cold feeling round her heart, she thought, But I'm lucky to have even this. After all, people don't like a coroner's inquest, even if the coroner did acquit me of all blame. He had even complimented her on her presence of mind and courage, she remembered. For an inquest, it could have gone better. And Mrs. Hamilton had been kindness itself to her. Only Hugo. But she wouldn't think of Hugo. Suddenly, in spite of the heat in the carriage, she shivered and wished she wasn't going to the sea. A picture rose clearly before her mind. Sybil's head bobbing up and down, swimming to the rock, up and down, up and down, and herself, swimming in easy practice strokes after him, cleaving her way through the water, but knowing only too surely that she wouldn't be in time. The sea, its deep warm blue, mornings spent lying out on the sands, Hugo, Hugo had said he loved her. She must not think of Hugo.
She opened her eyes and frowned across at the man opposite her. A tall man with a brown face, light eyes, set to the close together, and an arrogant, almost cruel mouth. She thought to herself, I bet he's been to some interesting part of the world and seen some interesting things. 3. Philip Lombard, summing up the girl opposite him, in a mere flash of his quick moving eyes, thought to himself, Quite attractive. A bit schoolmistressy, perhaps. A cool customer, he should imagine. And one who could hold her own in love or war. He'd rather like to take her arm. He frowned. No, cut out all that kind of stuff. This is business. He'd got to keep his mind on the job. What exactly was up, he wondered. That little Jew had been damn mysterious. Take it or leave it, Captain Lombard. He had said thoughtfully. A hundred guineas, eh? He had said it in a casual way as though a hundred guineas was nothing to him. A hundred guineas, when he was literally down to his last square meal. He had fancied, though, that the little Jew had not been deceived. That was the damnable part about Jews. You couldn't deceive them about money. They knew. He said in the same casual tone. And you can't give me any further information? Mr. Isaac Morris had shaken his little bald head very positively. No, Captain Lombard, the matter rests there. It is understood by my client that your reputation is that of a good man in a tight place. I am empowered to hand you one hundred guineas in return for which you will travel to Stickelhaven, Devon. The nearest station is Oakbridge. You will be met there and motored to Stickelhaven, where a motor launch will convey you to Soldier Island. There you will hold yourself at the disposal of my client. Lombard had said abruptly, For how long? Not longer than a week and most. Fingering his small moustache, Captain Lombard said, You understand I can't undertake anything illegal. He had darted a very sharp glance at the other as he had spoken. There had been a very faint smile on the thick, semistic lip of Mr. Morris, as he answered gravely. If anything illegal is proposed, you will, of course, be at perfect liberty to withdraw. Damn the smooth little boot! He had smiled! It was as though he knew very well that in Lombard's past actions, legality had not always been a sine qua non. Lombard's own lips parted in a grin. By Jove, he'd sat pretty near the wind once or twice, but he'd always got away with it. There wasn't much he drew the line at, really. No, there wasn't much he drew the line at. He fancied that he was going to enjoy himself at Soldier Island. 4. In a non-smoking carriage, Miss Emily Brent sat very upright, as was her custom. She was 65, and she did not approve of lounging. Her father, a colonel of the old school, had been particular about deportment. The present generation was shamelessly lax in their carriage and in every other way. Enveloped in awe of righteousness and in yielding principles, Miss Brent sat in a crowded third-class carriage and triumphed over its discomfort and its heat. Everyone made such fuss over things nowadays. They wanted injections before their teeth pulled. They took drugs if they couldn't sleep. They wanted easy chairs and cushions, and the girls allowed their figures to slop about anyhow and lay about half-naked on the beaches in summer. Miss Brent's lips said closely. She would like to make an example of certain people. She remembered last year's summer holiday. This year, however, it would be quite different.
Soldier Island. Mentally, she reread the letter which she had already read so many times. Dear Miss Brent, I do hope you remember me. We were together at Bellhaven Guest House in August some years ago, and we seem to have so much in common. I'm starting a guest house of my own on an island off the coast of Devon. I think there's really an opening for a place where there's a good, plain cooking and a nice, old-fashioned type of person. None of this nudity and gramophones have the night. I shall be very glad if you could see your way to spending your summer holiday on Soldier Island, quite free, as my guest. Would early in August suit you? Perhaps the 8th? Yours sincerely, you and... Oh, what was that name? The signature was rather difficult to read. Emily Brent thought impatiently. So many people write their signatures quite illegibly. She let her mind run back over the people at the Bell Haven. She had been there two summers running. There had been that nice middle-aged woman, Miss... Miss... Now, what was her name? Her father had been a, a canon, and there had been a Mrs. Alton Orman. No, surely it was Oliver. Yes, Oliver. Soldier Island. There had been things in the paper about Soldier Island. Something about a film star? Was it an American millionaire? Of course, often those places went very cheap. Islands didn't suit everybody. They thought the idea was romantic, but when they came to live there, they realized the disadvantages and were only too glad to sell. Emily Brent thought to herself, I shall be getting a free holiday at any rate. With her income so much reduced and so many dividends not being paid, that was indeed something to take into consideration. If only she could remember a little more about Mrs... Or was it Miss Oliver? Five. General MacArthur looked out of the carriage window. The train was just coming into Exeter, where he had to change. Down upon these slow-branched line trains... This place, Soldier Island, was really no distance at all as the crow flies. He hadn't got it clear who this fellow Owen was. A friend of Spoof, Leggards, apparently, and of John Dyer's. One or two of your old cronies are coming. We'd like to have a talk of old times. Well, he'd enjoy a chat about old times. He'd had a fancy lately that fellows were rather fighting and shy of him. All owing to that damned rumour. By God, it was pretty hard. Nearly thirty years ago now. Armitage had talked, he supposed. Damned young pup, what did he know about it? One no good brooding about these things. One fancied thing sometimes. Fancied a fellow was looking at you queerly. This soldier island now, he'd be interested to see it. A lot of gossip flying about. Looked as though there might be something in the rumour that he... Admiralty of the War Office or the Air Force had got hold of it. Young Elmer Robson, the American millionaire, had actually built the place. Spent thousands on it, so it was said. Every mortal luxury. Exeter. An hour to wait. And he didn't want to wait. He wanted to get on. Six. Dr. Armstrong was driving his Morris across Salisbury Plain. He was very tired. Success had its penalties. There had been a time when he had sat in his consulting room in Harley Street, covertly apparelled, surrounded with the most up-to-date appliances and the most luxurious furnishings, and waited, waited through the empty days for his venture to succeed or fail. Well, it had succeeded. He'd been lucky, lucky and skillful, of course. He was a good man at his job, but that wasn't enough for success. You had to have luck as well. 
and he'd had it. An accurate diagnosis, a couple of grateful women patients, women with money and position, and word had got about. You ought to try Armstrong, quite a young man, but so clever. Pam had been to all sorts of people for years, and he put his finger on the trouble at once. The ball had started rolling, and now Dr. Armstrong had definitely arrived. His days were full, he had a little leisure, and so on this August morning he was glad that he was leaving London and going to be for some days on an island off the Devon coast. Not that it was exactly a holiday. The letter he had received had been rather vague in its terms, but there was nothing vague about the accompanying cheque. A whacking fee! These Owens must be rolling in money. Some little difficulty, it seemed. The husband was worried about his wife's health and wanted a report on it without her being alarmed. She wouldn't have seen a doctor. Her nerves. Nerves. The doctor's eyebrows went up. These women and their nerves. Well, it was good for business, after all. Half the women who consulted him had nothing the matter with them but boredom. But they wouldn't thank you for telling them so. And one could usually find something. A slightly uncommon condition of the, some long word, nothing at all serious, but Denise just put in right, a simple treatment. Well, medicine was mostly faith healing when it came to it, and he had a good manner. He could inspire hope and belief. Look, they managed to put himself together in time after that business. Ten or fifteen years ago, it had been a near thing that he had been going to pieces. The shark had pulled him together. He'd cut a drink altogether. By Jove, it had been a near thing, though. With a devastating ear-splitting blast on the horn, an enormous super-sports Dalmain car rushed past him at 80 miles an hour. Dr. Armstrong nearly went into the hedge. One of these young fools who tore round the country. He hated them. They had been a near shave, too. Damn, young fool. 7. Tony Marston, roaming down to Muir, thought to himself, The amount of cars crawling about the roads is frightful. Always something blocking your way. And they will drive in the middle of the road. Pretty hopeless driving in England, anyway. Not like France, where you really could let out. Should I stop here for a drink or push on? Heaps of time. Only another hundred miles and a bit to go. He'd have a gin and ginger beer. Fizzing hard day. This island place ought to be rather good fun, if the weather lasted. Who were these Owens, he wondered. Rich and stinking, probably. Badger was rather good at noising people like that out. Of course he had, too, poor chap, with no money of his own. Hope they'd do one well in drinks. Never knew with these fellows who'd made their money and weren't born to it. But that story about Gabriel Turner having bought Soldier Island wasn't true. We like to have been in with that film star crowd. Oh, well, he supposed there'd be a few girls there. Coming out of the hotel, he stretched himself, yawned, looked up at the blue sky, and climbed to the gentleman. Several young women looked at him admiringly. Six feet of well-proportioned bodies, crisp hair, tanned face, and intensely blue eyes. He let in the clutch with a roar and leapt up the narrow street. Old men and Evan boys jumped for safety. The latter looked at the car admiringly. Anthony Marston proceeded on his triumphal progress. 8. Mr. Bloor was in the slow train from Plymouth. 
There was only one other person in his cabbage, an elderly, seafaring gentleman with a bleary eye. At the present moment, he had dropped off to sleep. Mr. Blanc was writing carefully in a little notebook. That's the lot, he muttered to himself. Emily Brent, Vera Claythorne, Dr. Armstrong, Anthony Marston, Old Justice Wargrave, Philip Lombard, General MacArthur, CMG, DSO, Manservant and Wife, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. He closed the notebook and put it back in his pocket. He glanced over at the corner and the slumbering man. Heard one over the eight. Diagnosed Mr. Blore accurately. He went over things carefully and conscientiously in his mind. Job ought to be easy enough. He ruminated. Don't see how I can slip up on it. Hope I look all right. He stood up and scrutinized himself anxiously in the glass. The face reflected there was of a slightly military cast with a moustache. There was very little expression in it. The eyes were grey and set rather close together. Might be a major, said Mr. Blore. No, I forgot. There's that old military gent. He'd spot me at once. South Africa, said Mr. Blore. That's my line. None of these people have anything to do with South <laughs> Africa. And I've just been reading that travel folder so I can talk about it all right. Fortunately, there were all sorts and types of colonials. As a man of means from South Africa, Mr. Blore felt that he could enter into any society unchallenged. Soldier Island. He remembered Soldier Island as a boy. Smelly sort of rock covered with gold stirred about a mile from the coast. It got its name from its resemblance to a man's head and American soldier profile. Funny idea to go and build a house on it. Awful in bad weather, but millionaires were full of whims. The old man in the corner woke up and said, You can never tell it's seen, never. Mr. Blore said soothingly, That's right, you can't. The old man hiccuped twice and said plaintively, There's a squall coming. Mr. Blore said, No, no, mate, it's a lovely day. The old man said angrily, There's a squall ahead, I can smell it. Maybe you're right, said Mr. Blore pacifically. The train stopped at the station and the old fellow rose and said, this rugged out. He fumbled with the window. Mr. Blow helped him. The old man stood in the doorway. He raised a solemn hand and blinked his blurry eyes. Watch and pray, he said. Watch and pray. The day of judgment is at hand. He collapsed through the doorway onto the platform. From a recumbent position, he looked up at Mr. Blow and said with immense dignity, I'm talking to you, young man. The day of judgment is very close at hand. Subsiding onto his seat, Mr. Blore thought to himself, He's nearer the day of judgment than I am. But there, as it happens, he was wrong. Chapter 2 Outside Oakbridge Station, a little group of people stood in momentary uncertainty. Behind them stood porters with suitcases. One of these called, Jim! The driver of one of the taxis stepped forward. You from Soldier Island, maybe? He asked in a soft, Devon voice. Four voices gave assent. And then, immediately afterwards, gave quick, surreptitious glances at each other. The driver said, addressing his remarks to Mr. Justice Wargrave as the senior member of the party. There are two taxis here, sir. One of them must wait till the slow train from Exeter gets in. A matter of five minutes. There's one gentleman coming by that. Perhaps one of you wouldn't mind waiting. You'd be more comfortable that way. 
If I were Clayton, her own secretarial position clear in her mind, spoke at once. I'll wait, she said. If you will go on? She looked at the other three. Her glance and voice had that sort of suggestion of command in it that comes from having occupied a position of authority. She might have been directing which ten sets the girls were to play in. Miss Brent said stiffly. Thank you. Bent her head and entered one of the taxis, the door of which the driver was holding open. Mr. Justice Wargrave followed her. Captain Lombard said... I'll wait with Miss Clayton, said Vera. My name is Lombard, Philip Lombard. The porters were piling luggage on the taxi. Inside, Mr. Justice Wargrave said with due legal caution. Beautiful weather we are having, Miss Brent said. Yes, indeed. A very distinguished old gentleman, she thought to herself. Quite unlike the usual type of men in seaside guest houses. Evidently, Mrs. or Miss Oliver had good connections. Mr. Justice Wargrave inquired. Do you know this part of the world well? I've been to Cornwall and to Turkey, but this is my first visit to this part of Devon. The judge said. I also am unacquainted with this part of the world. The taxi drove off. The driver of the second taxi said. Like us inside, will you, Wayne? Vera said decisively. Not at all. Captain Lombard smiled. He said, That sunny wall looks more attractive, unless you'd rather go inside the station. No, indeed. It's so delightful to get out of that stuffy train, he answered. Yes, travelling by train is rather trying in this weather. Verva said conventionally, I do hope it lasts. The weather, I mean. Our English summers are so treacherous. With a slight lack of originality, Lombard asked. Do you know this part of the world well? No, I've never been here before, she added quickly. Conscientiously determined to make a position clear at once. I haven't even seen my employer yet. Your employer? Yes, I'm Mrs. Owen's secretary. Oh, I see. Just imperceptibly, his manner changed. It was slightly more assured, easier in tone, he said. Isn't that rather unusual? Oh, no, I don't think so. Her own secretary was suddenly taken ill, and she wired to an agency for a substitute. And they sent me. So that was it. And suppose you don't like the post when you've got there? Oh, it's not only a temporary holiday post. I've got a permanent job at a girls' school. As a matter of fact, I'm frightfully thrilled at the prospect of seeing Soldier Island. There's been such a lot about it in the papers. It's really very fascinating. Lombard said. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Oh, really? The Owens are frightfully keen on it, I suppose. What are they like? Do tell me. Lombard thought. Awkward, this. Am I supposed to have met them or not? He said quickly. There's a wasp calling up your arm. No, keep still. He made a convincing pounce. There, it's gone. Oh, uh, thank you. There are a lot of wasps about this summer. Yes, I suppose it's the heat. Who are we waiting for, do you know? I haven't the least idea. The loud, drawn-out scream of an approaching train was heard. Lombard said, That will be the train now. It was a tall, soldierly old man who appeared at the eight from the platform. 
His grey hair was clipped, closed, and he had a neatly trimmed white moustache. His porter, staggering slightly under the weight of the solid leather suitcase, indicated Veva and Lombard. Veva came forward in a competent manner. She said, I am Mrs. Owen's secretary. There's a car here waiting, she added. This is uh, Mr. Lombard. The faded blue eyes, shrewd in spite of their age, sized up Lombard. For a moment, a judgment showed in them had there been anyone to read it. Good-looking fellow, something just a little wrong about him. The three of them got into the waiting taxi. They drove through the sleepy streets of Little Oak Bridge and continued about a mile on the main Plymouth Road. Then they plunged into a maze of cross-country lanes, steep, green and narrow. General MacArthur said, <clears throat> Don't know this part of Devon at all. My little place is in East Devon, just on the borderline of Dorset. Veva said, It really is lovely here. The hills and the red earth and everything so green and um, luscious looking. Philip Lombard said critically, It's a bit shut in. I like the open country myself. Where you can see what's coming. General MacArthur said to him, You've seen a bit of the world, I fancy. Lombard shrugged his shoulders disparagingly. I've knocked about here and there, sir. He thought to himself. He'll ask me now if I was old enough to be in the war. These old boys always do. But General MacArthur did not mention the war. They came up over a steep hill and down a zigzag track to Sticklehaven, a mere cluster of cottages with a fishing boat or two drawn up on the beach. Illuminated by the setting sun, they had the first glimpse of Soldier Island, jutting up out of the sea to the south. Vera said, surprised, It's a long way out. She had pictured it differently, close to shore, crowned with a beautiful white house. But there was no house visible, only the boldly silhouetted rock with its faint resemblance to a giant soldier's head. There was something sinister about it. She shivered faintly. Outside a little inn, the seven stars, three people were sitting. There was the hunched, elderly figure of the judge, the upright form of Miss Brent, and a third man, a big bluff man, who came forward and introduced himself. Thought we might as well wait for you, he said. Make one trip of it. Allow me to introduce myself. Name is Davis. Natal. South Africa is my natal spot. <laughs> he laughed breezily. Mr. Justice Wargrave looked at him with active malevolence. He seemed to be wishing that he could order the court to be cleared. Miss Emily Brent was clearly not sure if she liked colonials. Anyone clear for a little nip before we embark? Asked Mr. Davis, hospitably. Nobody is sent into this proposition, Mr. Davis turned and held up a finger. Mustn't delay, then. Our good host and hostess will be expecting us, he said. He might have noticed that a curious constraint came over the other members of the party. It was as though the mention of the host and hostess had a curiously paralyzing effect upon the guests. In response to Davis's beckoning finger, a man detached himself from a nearby wall against which he was leaning and came up to them. His rolling gait proclaimed him... A man of the sea. He had a weather-beaten face and dark eyes with a slightly evasive expression. He spoke in his soft, Devon voice. Will you be ready to be starting for the island, ladies and gentlemen? The boat's waiting. There's two gentlemen coming by car, but Mr. Owen's orders was not to wait for them, as they might arrive at any time. The party got up. The guide led them along a small stone jetty. 
Alongside it, a motorboat was lying. Emily Brent said, That's a very small boat. The boat's owner said persuasively, She's a fine boat, then, ma'am. You could go to Plymouth in her as easy as winking. Mr. Justice Wargrave said sharply, There are a good many of us. She'd take double the number, sir, Philip Lombard said in his pleasant, easy voice. It's quite all right. Glorious weather and no swell. Although doubtfully, Miss Brent permitted herself to be helped into the boat. The others followed suit. There was as yet no fraternizing among the party. It was as though each member of it was puzzled by the other members. They were just about to cast loose when the guide paused, boat hook in hand. Down the steep track into the village, a car was coming. A car so fantastically powerful, so superlatively beautiful, that it had all the nature of an apparition. At the wheel sat a young man, his hair blown back by the wind. In the blaze of the evening light, he looked not a man, but a young god, a hero god, out of some northern saga. He touched the horn, and a great roar of sound echoed from the rocks of the bay. It was a fantastic moment. In it, Anthony Marston seemed to be something more than mortal. Afterwards, more than one of those present remembered that moment. Fred Navicott sat by the engine, thinking to himself that this was a queer lot. Not at all his idea of when Mr. Owen's guests were likely to be. He'd expected something altogether more classy. Togged up, women and gentlemen, in yacht and costume, and all very rich and important looking. Not at all like Mr. Elmer Robson's parties. A faint grin came to Fred Navicott's lips as he remembered the millionaire's guests. That had been a party, if you like, and the drink they'd got through. This Mr. Owen must be a very different sort of gentleman. Funny it was, thought Fred, that he never yet set eyes on Owen, or his missus either. Never been down here yet, he hadn't. Everything ordered and paid for by then Mr. Morris. Instructions always very clear and payment prompt, but it was odd all the same. The papers said there was some mystery about Owen. Mr. Navicott agreed with them. Perhaps, after all, it was Miss Gabriel Turl who had brought the island, but that theory departed from him as he surveyed his passengers. Not this lot. None of them looked likely to have anything to do with the film star. He summed them up dispassionately. One old maid, the sour kind he knew them well enough. She was a tartar, he could bet. Old military gentleman, real army by the look of him. Nice-looking young lady, but the ordinary kind. Not glamorous, no Hollywood touch about her. That bluff, cheery gent wasn't a real gentleman. Tired tradesman, that's what he is, thought Fred Navicott. The other gentleman, the lean, hungry-looking gentleman with the quick eyes, he was a queer one, he was. Just possible he might have something to do with the pictures. No, there was only one satisfactory passenger in the boat. The last gentleman... The one who had arrived in the car. And what a car! A car such as he had never been seen in Stickelhaven before. Must have cost hundreds and hundreds a car like that. He was the right kind. Born to money, he was. If the party had been all like him, he'd understand it. Queer business, when you came to think of it. The whole thing was queer. Very queer. The boat churned its way round the rock. Now, at last, the house came into view. The south side of the island was quite different. It shelved gently down to the sea.